Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for the beauty and gift of this day, another day and another week to be together, to gather as community and to dive into your word. You are the word made flesh, and every time we open the pages of scripture, we are invited to encounter you, Jesus. And so, we pray that nothing would stand in the way of that, that you would remove any obstacles, any tiredness, any confusion, doubt, worry from our minds and our hearts in this moment. Allow us to lay those things that may be distracting us at your feet. And we ask, Lord, that your will be done in this next hour as well as in all of our lives. We pray that you would illuminate our time together. You would send your Holy Spirit upon us and give us the gifts of wisdom and knowledge, counsel, fortitude, piety, fear of the Lord, understanding so that we may approach the scriptures from new insights and, and draw from them deeper insights into our relationship with you. Be with us, Lord, and guide us in our discussion and our study and allow whatever you want brought to the surface for each one of us to be received and allow us to have ears that are ready to hear, hearts that are ready to receive, and lips that are ready to proclaim and share the good news that you have spoken to us tonight. Bless each one of us in the ways we most need it, and we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So great to see all of you here tonight. We are in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12. So we're going to read this twice through. First time through, I invite you to paint this scene in your mind. Again, this is a passage you have heard many, 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 many times, I bet. And so I invite you to delete the image you have of this from your mind and try and paint this new as you hear it. Pretend you have a blank canvas in front of you as if you've never heard this story before and try and imagine that you are there. Pay attention to your senses. What do you see, smell, touch? Where are you in the story? What stands out to you? What details have you never noticed before? Okay, so we're going to read Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, first time through. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so again, as I said, familiar passage, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivers in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, his longest and probably most uh, important discourse and teaching in all of the Gospels. Now that we've heard that section first time through, we're going to read it one more time. This time I invite you to just pay attention and zero in on the words as they are read. Try and remove from anything else in your mind anything but the words. And pay attention to what words or phrases resonate with you. 
They might spark a, a thought, something out of nowhere. They might speak to you in some way, speak to something you've been praying about, worrying about, a question you may have, whatever it is, something personal for you. Uh, pay attention to that and begin to reflect on it. What is the Lord trying to say to me? Why is this detail standing out? Second and final time through Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to look back over the things that stood out to you uh, in this passage. Begin to reflect on them. Why did these stand out? And we'll take about the next 10 minutes or so. If you're watching this later, please share with us what stood out to you in whatever way you can. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 minutes. Share at your tables what stood out to you, what resonated, what questions do you have? And then we'll draw it back to the larger group. If you're at a smaller table, feel free to combine with other people if you like. Uh, but we'll, I'll call you back in about 10 minutes. All right. I would love to hear what you've been discussing. What are some of the things that stand out? What are some of the questions that you have? We don't we don't want to we don't want to stop. We want to keep going. <laughs> yes. George. Just quick clarification here is that you know there's all these references to uh, to Luke 6. Yes. And in the uh, notes that go with this and is this two different times when it just you know I, obviously Luke is like 50 years later but are we talking about the very same day very most, likely. most likely yeah so the account in Luke is called the sermon on the plain yeah. and that has to do with where it is placed it's closer to gentile territory the geographic location there's no reason to think that it's different even though this happens on a mountain because that is uh, most likely even though there could be a, been a mountain and a plain there um, Matthew is doing something very intentional about presenting Jesus as a new Moses. And Moses is the one who goes up Mount Sinai to receive the law. And now he is giving a new law to this people to preach a new covenant in this new law. So uh, the way that they present it may be different geographically, but the, uh, the content is all the same. Like I believe absolutely everything that's found in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke is found in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is just more expansive here in Matthew. It's three whole chapters, whereas Luke's is confined to most of one chapter. So you'll see a lot of cross-references in this whole passage between uh, Luke 6, I believe, and uh, Matthew 5, because that's where these corresponding ones are in Luke. However, Luke only has about four Beatitudes, and then he has four woes, like woe to you who are rich, and like the uh, corresponding punishments to those who uh, cling to their wealth and things like that. So yeah, slightly different presentation, but... Matthew, I think, characterizes it to present Jesus as the new Moses. Yeah. Yeah, Michael. Um, this actually just popped out to me, but I thought it was interesting how it says in uh, verse 1 that he went up the mountain and after he had sat down. Because um, generally teachers are from the classroom, everyone else is sitting, but I don't know if there's any kind of... Yeah, the old way was the opposite. And how I wish it was still that way, because I'm here standing and you all get to comfortably sit. And the old, in, in the old way, it was the opposite. The teacher would sit and the students would stand. 
you know, because the teacher is the one who is older, wiser, has the, typically, I'm not older and wiser, but, you know, typically has the, the, the age under his belt, and so he's the one who's given the, the dignified and respected position to be able to sit while everyone else stands at attention to receive. So it was a normal posture of a teacher while he was teaching to sit and for the disciples to come and stand and sometimes sit as well to listen. Please yeah. buy your special chair. I used to have a stool, and then I, I got tired of it, so I wanted to try stand. I feel like more, I feel like I can uh, tap into the spirit more when I'm standing. I'm sitting, I'm like, I don't know if you saw Father Patrick's message this week, God does not anoint the lazy, you know, so I got to be on my feet. Can't be anointed if I'm not on my feet. Yeah. Other uh, questions? Yes. What are poor in spirit? Yes, great question. The poor in spirit. The word here in Greek for poor is toho, tohos. It's hard to say in Greek, uh, which means uh, basically beggars. Those who so the physical like physical poverty of this word would be those who actually like rely completely on the uh, generosity of other people. And so these would be people you only begged if you were completely destitute in the society. You had no one to rely on, no one to provide for you. You were cast out maybe from the temple or from society because you were blind, disfigured, you were lame, you were a widow, you know, and no one was there to provide for you, whatever it was, a leper, etc. Uh, and so this meant you had complete reliance and dependence on other people. Now, when you add to this in the spirit, what that means is spiritually, we are meant to come before the Lord as beggars, meaning totally reliant, totally dependent on the Lord. So we can't come to the Lord and say, look, Jesus, look at all the riches that I have built up for myself spiritually. Look how great I am and all the good works that I do. We will not then inherit the kingdom of heaven if we do that, because we'll think we earned it somehow. And we can't. We can't possibly earn it. You know, even the holiest people in history, Mother Teresa, Nothing that she did got her any closer to earning salvation for herself. She still came before God, as we all do, completely reliant on him and completely destitute in our sin and the stain of original sin on our soul. That's how profoundly important it is that Jesus came to die for our sins. We don't earn it. We don't you know, claim any entitlement or ownership of that. It's a free gift to receive. And unless we come to him poor and ready to receive it with empty hands instead of hands clenched to the things that we think will make us worthy or earn it or make us feel like we're good enough or better than anyone else, only if we come to him with open hands, poor in spirit, will we be able to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yes, sir. When you, you take a look at the beginning words of this paragraph, paragraph, it's kind of confusing whether or not he was speaking this to the crowd or whether he, he went up the hill and was talking about this to his disciples. Mm -hmm. So which is it? It is, it is to the crowds. So if you go to the end of the sermon... In Matthew 7, all the way at the end of Matthew 7, it says, When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Yes? Why do we say all of this, this specific content, at this moment? Yes, so, um, oh my gosh, I can answer this so many different ways. So, he... he there's a lot of uh, sections in the Sermon on the Mount where he says things like, for example, the rest of chapter 5, he says things like, you have heard that it was said. And he's quoting pieces of the law from the Torah. And he's pointing out the ways in which people have interpreted the law in a way that is very uh, half-hearted or very um, scrupulous or just it didn't have the heart of what the law really meant. It lacked love. It lacked charity. And so what he then does is he presents this new teaching, but it's not to replace the old. Remember, Jesus says elsewhere, I have not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. I did not come to change one jot or tittle of the law. I came to fulfill it. And so he's telling people, reminding people, this is what the law really meant initially. This is what the law was supposed to be, was to call you to a deeper place of holiness and to recognize that following the Lord is turning everything upside down. And yet what they did is he created this establishment of entitlement. When you follow the law, you get higher and higher up, and you get more and more important, the Pharisees. And so that was not something that was intended. The law, if you read all, if you go back and you actually read the law that's presented in Exodus and Leviticus, it's all to protect those who are outcast, the marginalized, those who are the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. They are mentioned over and over and over and over and over again in all of the commandments that follow after the Ten Commandments. The Ten are like the supreme, the ones that we base everything else off of, but then we stop reading, and we forget that the Jewish people had 603 other commandments that, they, that held equal importance 
In fact, they would always debate among one another which of the, the laws is the greatest. That's why they asked Jesus that. The scribes come and ask Jesus, which of the laws is the greatest? Because it was a common rabbinical question. Nobody knew. There was no, no presentation in the way that the law was given, which ones were the most important. You just had the ten words that came first. The Ten Commandments were the first part of the law that was given. And so sometimes they would give that a little more authority because it came first, but often it was a matter of contention. So they got into scrupulosity. They lost the heart of the law. They were thinking more of the letter of the law than the heart of the law, and we had all these problems result. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's presenting an upside-down worldview that brings back what the heart of the law was supposed to be and is, you'll notice, is devoid of all of the ritualistic temple sacrifice and all of those different um, laws that were in place to separate them from the pagan religions around them. And he gets right to the heart of what it means to love your neighbor and to love God. And that's why we can summarize the entire law, the entire Ten Commandments, in that same way. And in the same way, you can summarize the Beatitudes in that way. The first four Beatitudes have to do with our relationship with God, just like the first three commandments do. The following four Beatitudes have to do with our relationship with one another, just like the following seven commandments, uh, four through ten, have to do. So it's presenting the original law in a new way, with new language, to help remind people, this is what God has been calling us to all along. So he's pointing out the ways that the old law was misinterpreted and not followed properly and led to corruption, scrupulosity, uh, the Pharisaic kind of obsession with the law without actually following the heart of it. And he's trying to correct that, all orienting it toward love of God and love of neighbor. Does that make sense? Great. Other uh, questions, things that stand out? Yes. We were just noticing how the word righteousness appeared twice. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I was wondering if you could comment on like would it be just like essence of fairness or justification? Like what would they have been understanding? Yeah, the original word uh, in Greek, I believe, the synonyms for it are justice and fairness. That can also be translated that way. Um, righteousness is one of those words that's like it's when you break it down, it's kind of very plain. It's like rightnessness, like the ability of being right. Uh, so if you have rightness about you, it's that ability of having rightness, like you're doing things in the rightly ordered way. And another word for that is doing things in a just way, in a, in a properly ordered way in terms of God, how God created us with a natural order and a balance and everyone is treated fairly, etc. And so um, that sense of righteousness really is just, you know, living rightly, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it, the fact that it's mentioned twice is, um, is, is very interesting. In the original, uh, or not the original, the other account in Luke the Sermon on the Plain, it just says, blessed are they who hunger. It doesn't say, and thirst for righteousness. That's added in Matthew's account or taken out in Luke's. We're not sure. Um, and then, blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I like that he added that. Because if it just said, blessed are they who are persecuted. I mean, you've ever met complainers? None of us here, obviously, right? You know? But like, you know, you can, you can just say all day long, like, oh, I'm being so persecuted. You know, I'm being so persecuted. No, for the sake of righteousness. Not just because you're complaining about how your life isn't working out the way that you would like, or someone was mean to you, or you're not acknowledging the, uh, the role that you had to play in something negative that happened. No, it's always for the sake of righteousness that we're persecuted. So we can't just think like, oh, I'm being so persecuted, you know, so I must be being really holy. Like, no, you could be a jerk, you know, so like you have to make sure you're being persecuted for the sake of righteousness to be able to then infer that you're having that spiritual benefit of inheriting the kingdom of heaven. So I like that caveat that Michael puts, or that Matthew puts there. Yes. Other thoughts on this? Yeah. Richard first, and then Matt. Uh, my Jerusalem Bible, Bible doesn't say blessed. Is Does it there, say happy? Happy. Yes. Is, it, is there a difference in, in that interpretation now? Uh, just a synonym for the word. The word in Greek is makarioi, which uh, can mean uh, complete, blessed, perfect, happy, uh, all those different things. Um, in, in Hebrew, when uh, this word is translated in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's translated uh, often from the word barakah, which means blessed in Hebrew. And that can mean um, sitting on the lap or on bended knee, uh, which are interesting synonyms. But that position of sitting on the lap is one of a child. So think again, a poor in spirit, someone who's dependent and reliant upon the person whose lap they're sitting. Or if you're on bended knee, you are submitting to the authority of the person you are bowing to. So both of those Hebrew concepts of being blessed or happy or complete 
are in acknowledging your place before the one who is providing for you, before the one who has authority over you. And then in the Greek, that's translated to happy, blessed, complete, because in doing so, the thought is you live a full and complete life if you recognize your position before God. Uh, and that's why some of the, the, you know, putting it simply, like some of the most uh, profound realizations are in, in coming to know who, who God is and who God is not, and who I am and who I am not. And so I remember going to a, um, uh, a, a youth group when I, at a Baptist church when I was in high school. And it's the only teaching I remember. Actually, there was two teachings I remember. One was about how far is too far and with a girl or with a boyfriend. And we all got to shout out different um, immoral acts to chart them on a timeline. It was chaos. I would never, but me in high school, I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened in any youth group. And I was like shouting out things that I would never shout out now. But um, <laughs> So I, I definitely remember that one. But the, the, one, the one that I remember that was serious was this phrase that the, the very beginning of his sermon, this was to a bunch of high school, it was probably like 150 of us, there was a huge youth group at this church. And um, he put up this phrase and it said, I am not, but I know I am. I am not, but I know I am. And he repeated it over and over again. And he slowly broke it down to reveal the name of God in Exodus 3, I am. And so the phrase was to remind us, I am not, meaning I'm not God but I know God. And so that realization, knowing like there is a God and I am not him, is something that is very profound, which happens when we acknowledge our position on the lap or on bended knee before God, and we, as a result, become blessed, happy, complete, perfect. So you'll see those translations, that word being translated or used in the Beatitudes across many translations. They mean effectively the same thing. Yeah. Matt. Two things. One, um, just talking about the word disciples. I was telling people, I, my whole life, I like whenever I saw the word disciples, I was thought it just the, mm -hmm. like I didn't realize like how many disciples like that are about you know devoted mm -hmm. to Jesus. So I feel like now reading and after like watching the chosen, like this visual of just like all the people that are following him makes it a little more personal. Like you can kind of put yourself in yeah. their shoes, being like right there. And, like, you know, instead of, like, you know, having one two, like, just, like, 12 people that he chose, like, we're all chosen. Yeah. And we're all called to it. So that stood out to me. And second, also going with the righteousness, um, verse 10, plus are those who persecute for righteousness sake. Like, I feel like especially, you know, with all the pro-life walks that happened this week, mm -hmm. like, I personally, you know, relate to that just because, like, I was at a walk, like, a couple days ago. And there was, like, this group of girls that, like, came up to, like, a group and asked, like, if we wanted to be interviewed. Like, oh, yeah, we come from, like, a pro-life, like, a pro-life organization. Like, we just want to interview. Like, does anyone want this on the shirt? So they're interviewing me, and they're, like, asking me, like, all these questions. And, like, I feel like I'm giving pretty heartfelt responses. But then, like, all of a sudden, like, they asked me, like, okay, we're going to play a little game. Uh, we're gonna play like a word association game. So just say the first thing that like pops. Oh great! <laughs> I'm like, there's no way I'm gonna like. Oh well, anyway, I'm not gonna say something that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. One, I'm a a young adult male, so the first thing that pops in my head is probably not gonna be. A good thing. <laughs> but anyway, so the second word was woman. And I couldn't think of anything. It was like, you gotta say it now. I'm like, uh, freedom. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. It's like, we thought like you would probably say something more like. Uh, incubator or cattle down this like what and i just realized like holy crap they tricked me into this. oh they weren't the organization they said they were from yeah so yeah basically they were like a pro-choice like like basically they they're being sneaky and I, yeah. I felt like very like upset that like you know i felt like i really like poured my heart into like those answers yeah. and yeah that like that's where I felt like persecuted, like for righteousness' sake. It's like yeah. I felt like, you know, they were trying to like find fuel, like you know, if they post that somewhere, like trying to trip me up. Oh yeah. Just like I don't know, it just felt evil. Yeah. And like you know, I don't think I did anything wrong. Yeah. The fact that that they could use that, you know, to like portray like just like the movement in general, just as something. Like, you know, yeah. For you personally. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. And that's a hard thing, you know, and that's what, you know, when it comes to being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, they often say, like, if you're not being persecuted for your faith, you're probably not living it right. You're probably not, you know, being faithful to your faith in the way that you are supposed to be, because living our faith in the way that we're called to live, it means we're living it in the world. 
boldly in the world, not in people's face in an angry or you know um, aggressive way, but in a way that obviously demands a response and is inviting you know, to other people, whether they respond in anger or in curiosity. That's uh, still the type and the level of faith that we're meant to have. And if we're not soliciting that response with, oh yeah, I've been Christian my whole life and I get along with pretty much everyone, I'd be like, well, you're probably not that Christian. You know, to be honest, you know, it's a, it's a hard truth, but it's, you know, because we, we live in a world where it's easy to kind of be like, okay, everyone, just like, don't bother anyone. And we throw words around like tolerance and you hear phrases like, well, I'm very faithful, but I would never impose my beliefs on someone else. I would never shove my religion down someone else's throat. We may have said those things before. We hear them often in conversation and they seem very kind things to say. But when you read the gospel and the things that Jesus asked us to do and how he asked us to live them out. We cannot say those things. We cannot live that way. We have to be able to boldly share the good news. We have to. There's no excuse not to. It doesn't matter the situation. We have to be willing to lose, you know, reputation or lose even friendships, family members, jobs, opportunities for the sake of the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean we punish ourselves and constantly are looking for, like, what's the most suffering I can endure for Jesus? Like, no, like, God doesn't want you to be always, you know, uh, intensifying your victimization for his sake. Uh, we can offer sufferings to the Lord, but it doesn't mean that we should be avoiding those opportunities to share when they come up because they're uncomfortable. Living the gospel is always uncomfortable. Always. I want to point something out about these, these beatitudes, these eight statements. I want, you to, I, I want you to think about each one of these and how antithetical they are to what we want in the world. Okay? So first, blessed are the poor in spirit. Do we want to be poor in the world? Does the world want to be poor? No, they want to be rich. Right? Everyone wants to be rich. Blessed are they who mourn. People in the world don't want to mourn. They don't want to even acknowledge pain. They want a world free of pain. Blessed are the meek. People don't want to be meek. They want power. They want influence over other people. Right? Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do we want to stand up and be in those uncomfortable situations? No, we want contentment. We want comfort. Blessed are the merciful. Do we want to be merciful to others? Well, no, we care really about our rights. But then when other people's rights are being violated, do we get as angry? Do we get as, and I'm talking about the world in general, not us. You know, I'm talking about culture here. Blessed are the clean of hearts. No, our culture wants pleasure. Left and right, all opportunities for pleasure. Blessed are the peacemakers. No, we don't want peace. We want to win. We want to succeed. It doesn't matter who or what we step on to get there. And blessed are those who are persecuted. No, we want to be loved and beloved by the world. It's the whole point of social media, to have friends, followers, likes, subscribes, shares, all those things. This is totally antithetical to the version of life that is offered and recommended to us and encouraged to us by the world. And as I was reading this and reflecting on this this week, like the main thing that stood out to me in this is that to be a Christian means to be completely set apart from the world. To the point where it should be abundantly obvious to anyone who interacts with us for more than a moment that there is something different about the way that we live. Not for our sake, not so that we can appear special to them, but so it provides an open door for them to encounter Jesus and so that they can live their lives differently too. That's why Jesus leads in his public ministry with this great discourse. In fact, Matthew arranges the whole Gospel of Matthew in five discourses, just like there are five books in the Torah, to present Jesus as presenting an entire new way of living their identity with God, completely upside down from the way that they thought it was and the way it was established in the Old Testament. I mean, look at the whole trajectory of Matthew so far. There's voices crying out in the wilderness. People have come from the east, from foreign lands, just like Moses, foreign lands of Egypt, people crying out in slavery. And they're set free. They pass through water, just like Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. He goes into the desert to be tempted, just like they wander in the desert for 40 years. And immediately after that wandering begins, Moses goes up to a mountain to receive this new law with power, just as Jesus goes up the mountain to receive and to give this new law with power to his 12 followers and the disciples who are there, just as Moses did to 12 tribes of Israel and who he appointed also later on elders. Guess how many there were? 70 or 72, the number of disciples who are also mentioned throughout the New Testament when he sends out the disciples. When one gospel is 70 and another is 72. All of this to show like something new, profound, 
in the line of Moses and the prophets, the greatest figures in the Old Testament and all of religious history and monotheism, something new and even greater is happening in Jesus Christ. And if it is not apparent in the way that we live, then there's something wrong, there's something awry, because Matthew is pointing it out so clearly. He's laying the path so that you, you couldn't help but notice the similarity and to be able to say, this is what everything has been pointing to. Now it is up to you to respond. And so this, the first and greatest of these five teachings, discourses in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Later we'll follow a, a missionary discourse, then a parable discourse, then a church order discourse, and then what's called the eschatology discourse, which has to do with end times. These five sections of teaching corresponding to the five books of the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is the new and even greater Moses, doing something new, establishing a new tribal people, a new kingdom of God, who's being chosen to live with that same power. And where did they go after the desert? They went into the promised land. And where do we go after we hear this? Hopefully into the promised land. But we have to live differently to get there. We have to. And that differently means completely set apart from the things that the world wants, because that's what all of these things are asking of us. Anyway, other things that stand out. Yes, Noah. Um, I, maybe it's probably my ignorance with uh, the etymology of the word blessed um, in English, but I think of the I think of the Latin term for it. And uh, change the but I think of uh, Benedictus when you sort of parse it, means you know coming from Dietre and Bene, the saying of the good, mm -hmm. um, and you sort of put it into that context. If you're to imagine, uh, say, a Vulgate translation, what that would be if it, if it would begin with Benedictus, the word incarnate has come, and it even references that he is coming to speak. He's coming to speak these words. Right, mm -hmm. and in speaking, he creates the word creates yeah. the word of God created the world, and so in that sense, he sort of creates for us those paths, um, those paths of union. Right, when we do these things, when we live these things, we signify uh, the word of the good, the union of the good, and this might be a stretch, but just as sort of. Internally, God's love for us uh, manifests itself in beautiful creation and life. We would think that signifying these things, signifying these virtues that he calls us into, signifying these beatitudes, would mean a sort of internal manifestation, a true internal manifestation of um, the goodness and full desire of union that we want with the Word, mm -hmm. right? Which is uh, especially contrary because... Um, it, it's a little unfortunate when you when you go to the actual mountain of Beatitudes. Of course, there's a beautiful church there, but uh, there's there's a sign of the mountain of the Beatitudes, and it's uh, it's a United Nations sign. It's supposed to be general virtues about you know peace, love, and happiness. Mm -hmm. The most um, the most sort of inane sense of, of each of those words, unfortunately. And you think that you know. Christ is calling us to something serious, right? He's not just calling us to donate to the Red Cross. Yeah. <laughs> He's calling us to fully manifest the disposition of the want of union so that we can externalize all these things, you know, so that we can uh, be in the word of the good. He, he has given us the word of the good. We can exude these things because we show a, a true love and interior desire uh, of union with him. Yeah. Yeah, if anyone presents... To you, a gospel that is easy or comfortable or completely like, oh, yeah, I get that. Like, that's like totally easy for me to adjust my life to. It's, it's devoid of something. You know, it's not, the, it's not the true goodness of the word, like breaking down that etymology again. Um, I heard someone say recently, the closer you get to Jesus, the more splinters you get from the cross. The closer you get to Jesus, the more splinters you get from the cross. And I think that's just an important thing to stay always aware of, that if we're living this in a right way, if we're living this with boldness and true, uh, true faith, being true disciples of Jesus Christ, it's not going to be easy. We will be persecuted. We will have to give things up and let go of things, have to recognize our attachments. We will have to surrender and trust to be obedient. You know, those aren't popular words today. You go around like in, in, in the world and the culture, like you'd be happy if you're just more obedient. People are like, what? 
What about me and my freedom and my autonomy? Like, oh, that's like a, it's like a no-no word, you know? Obedience. And yet, it's something that's so necessary for us. You know, and we, you see examples of this all throughout the Old Testament, that obedience leads to abundance and disobedience leads to destruction. Not that God punishes, but he's trying to tell us, like, if you do these things, it'll give you a good life. And so if you, you listen, that's where the word uh, obedire means. It means to listen to. If you listen to these teachings, then they are the path to the good life. And in the same sense, Jesus is presenting in this cultural context at his time, the law ordered in a new way to invite people to a new obedience, a deeper faith by following the Beatitudes, which are not a replacement for the old law, not a replacement for the Ten Commandments, but a rewording and representation of them that reinvigorate the heart of the law, which is love, humility, subservience to God, and recognizing that we are not God. We are not greater. He is in control, and we can trust in him. I think one of the greatest uh, demonstrations of this is the phrase, blessed are the meek. And you may have heard like uh, meek and mild, you know, combi combined before. I heard someone say this uh, in something I was listening to today. Uh, Jesus is meek, but he is not mild. Like mild is what we call salsa that has like no taste. Like if anything, he said like Jesus is like habanero or something like he's spicy. Okay. But the word meek, the word meek here, it comes from the root word in Greek, praus, And it was a word used when you would train a wild horses. And it meant when a horse, the, the wildness of that horse came under control, they were now praus, they were now meek, meaning it was power under control. It was power under control. You might also hear this in ancient context to describe, to describe a gentle breeze, you know, something that is very strong and powerful, the wind, like we've seen last night and today. But when it is controlled in a gentle breeze, it is something pleasant, something in the Greek word they would say is meek. That is what is meant by meek. It's not this like, you know, cowering person. It is someone whose power is acknowledged, but under control, subservient to the will of God. And that is, it embodies, I think, in a really beautiful way, all of these, all of these beatitudes. Other questions or thoughts on, on this passage? Any of the parts we haven't read yet or things that are burning on your heart to share? Yeah, Margo. <laughs> Stood out to me was persecution, and not to, but to a much greater extent. Mm -hmm. It just made me think. Just hey, if, if I, if somebody were going to kill me, if I, if I give up my faith or you know denounce Jesus or whatever, could I die? Mm -hmm. And it just made me think about my, um, yeah, that would be. Yeah, I think about that. Happen, but it just, it just hit me. Yeah. I think about that, too, because that's a reality in other parts of the world. Families are drawn out in a public square where Christianity is illegal, and the father is pulled out, and a gun is pointed to his head or a sword to his neck, and he is invited to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And if he does, he will live, and if he does not, he will be executed in front of his family. And I've often thought about myself and, like, my wife and our kids and wondering, like, if in that moment I can be, like, it, as much as I can imagine all the ways that I could bless you in the future if I were still here, would I have the boldness and the faith in that moment to bless you in the greatest way I can and proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead and that I will not turn away from that no matter what, even if it means a painful earthly death for a glorious eternal life. And we, thankfully, will probably never have to face that, but there are hundreds if not thousands who face that every day in other parts of the world. Again, I think I said this last week, there have been more people martyred in the last century for their Christian faith than all the other centuries combined since the beginning of the church. And we talk about these great, terrible persecutions under Diocletian and Nero in the first centuries of the church. That, combined with all the centuries after, are not greater than the last hundred years of Christian persecution in the world. That's crazy. We think it's getting better and more peaceful. It's not. It's getting harder and harder and harder in this world to live out Christian faith. And so either... People renounce it, or they make it watered down. And when, you're, when the gun's to your head, it's either you live it or you renounce it. We don't really have that temptation here. The temptation here in the West, where it's comfortable to be Christian, or it can be, is to water it down and to not live with that boldness. That's the, that's the temptation for us. That's a slow spiritual death versus the in-your-face physical death that might be threatened in other parts of the world. But both are equally as condemning for us and equally as necessary for us to be aware of and uh, 
prepare ourselves against. Yeah. I'll make this quick, but that reminds me of the problem I just had a, a talk about how he knew this family that came from, I don't know if this is a real family or he was just using it for his story, but that came from a persecuted place in China where- Yes. This one was the most recent homily podcast, I think. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, but I, I think this one was from, he probably released- He reiterated it recently, and that or in Catechism in a Year. Yeah. But basically, he was talking about how um, this Chinese family, like, moved to the States, and, like, they would come from a place where, like, they would have been killed if they were, like, found out that they were practicing Catholicism. Mm -hmm. But um, he talked about how they moved to the States and how the devil works. It's like, the devil, like, doesn't need to do much, like, talks about, like, for lions, like, when they fight, they try to castrate each other, basically. They don't really, like, you know, go for, like... No. You know, the face, they go for the the parts that yeah, we get them. <laughs> prevent them from, uh, from um, procreating. Yeah. And, and that's all they need to do. So basically, he was saying that the culture, that, that family that moved to America, they were safe, they were free, they were free to like practice their faith, but mm-hmm. really they like basically, you know, it just became watered down. Yeah. Like by the end of it. Yeah, if I'm remembering the story correctly, it was a, a man and his family, they would uh, hold, uh, you can be part of the state religion of Catholicism, which is not really Catholicism, or if you really want to be Catholic, it's underground. And they had uh, uh, underground priests come and they housed them in their home and had mass. And they were alerted by some guards that the government was coming. And so they, the priests got away and they took this man and they tortured him for weeks to tell, tell them where these priests were and to renounce his faith, and he didn't. They used electrodes. They used all these terrible torture methods, and he didn't, he didn't reveal where they were. And then him and his family eventually escaped and came to the United States, and they couldn't find, you know, it was like months sometimes between masses there, and they were always so ready to, to go. And now they're in the United States and go to mass every week, and they're very fervent. In the beginning, they go to mass, and this guy gets a job, and he gets busy, and so slowly he stops going to daily mass. He only starts going on the weekend. And then gets even busier and starts only going on Christmas and Easter. And then a few years later stops going to those altogether. I mean, this man who was like ready to die to protect these priests being tortured because he's in a society now where it's totally available and easy to be comfortable in our faith, totally compromises because of that lack of threat. And so in some ways, it's almost better and more obvious the goal of being Christian in other parts of the world where there is that threat, because you have to make that decision and you have to make it boldly. Like you have to know, like it's, it's this and death or it's compromising in life. Like there's no gray area here. It's all gray area. It's so easy, so easy to get comfortable and die that slow spiritual death instead of facing that instant physical one and being ready to, to go for it if the time comes. Uh, And so it's something we have to really be wary of. Daniel. It's just funny that you're mentioning all this about like just like not apostatizing basically because I was actually on a FaceTime call with my girlfriend yesterday about um, she actually watched the movie Silence for the first time. If you have watched that movie, I haven't seen it, but I know what it's about. Okay, yeah. well, anyway, it's about these two desert priests that go to Japan and mm-hmm. Shogun, Shogun era, and then they basically kind of like renounce their faith or else they hate tortured like yeah. just like hung up upside down and just made me think like wow that's they they don't give you the chance to like die instantly they literally beat you yeah to make you renounce your faith and just also made me think of like how like uh you know how saint lawrence died like he said oh yeah turn me over yeah i'm not done cooking it's like you'd have to be super super close to union with God to be able to like, be able to say, oh yeah, yeah. on the other side, I'm not done cooking. Yeah. Like, yeah it's, it's, it takes total faith, yeah. And it's just something I think most of us are not conditioned to be put in the position to know what that means because we're not threatened with that extreme on an everyday basis, you know. Yeah. The threat of death, the threat of hell, like it's all, we're conditioned by culture to not pay attention to it. Pay attention to what's comfortable, what will make you money and give you pleasure, like, and that doesn't exist in a lot of those other parts of the world where it's more war-torn or dangerous to be to be Christian. Yeah, Chris. Is that why we don't really see a lot of like radical like miracles out here in the West? I would argue that could be a reason, yeah. Because uh, in missionary areas where people are accepting the faith and boldness, like in Africa, 
where Catholicism is spreading like wildfire, you see the same types of miracles you see on the pages of Scripture. Yeah, and formerly in Latin America, before a lot of the evangelical missions started taking over there too, um, but they had some of that too, like miracles aren't limited to, to only us, like anyone who professes healing in the name of Jesus, that's possible. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's why. You do see them in the United States. You do see miracles and, and people being miraculously healed. And I'm not just talking about televangelists who fake it and use magic tricks for money, um, but actually seeing it, and I have with my own eyes too. So it, it does happen, but I think it's far more like the pages of scripture in places like that, where that complete obedience and faith is required, where it's easier for us to, okay, I'll commit to this point, you know. Uh, I also heard today, like, um, God, why was I going to say this? Well, okay, it's Holy Spirit. So I was talking about people in Scripture in the history of the church and said, nowhere in the pages of Scripture has God said, here's the whole plan. Here you go. Here's everything. Like even with Mary, he's like, here's how everything's going to play out. Don't worry about it. Here's the whole plan. Nobody. Nobody. And so it takes that faith and obedience in God, no matter how holy of a person you are, no matter how integral you were for the story of salvation history, like it still takes that radical yes to follow the Lord each and every way. And I think the reason why we don't see people having that type of faith in our culture is because we want to know the plan and we're not going to move until we have more of it. We're waiting on God to do something he never does because it demands faith. He's not going to give us more than is needed for us still to need that faith to follow him. Yes? Using your points from earlier, uh, wouldn't it make more sense that being a Christian in the West is arguably more difficult because, I mean, in the East, you know, where it's like Muslim or like uh, Hindu, like where you get put to death, like if you just stay strong in your conviction, it's like a quick death. Sure. However, in the West, um, it's uh, it's not like a death, but it's a slow spiritual death. And yeah. It's like a slower spiritual death where it gives you more to falter and, um, you know, put you in purgatory longer or even, like, steal your soul totally from, from yeah. faith and, like, the social ostracism that comes with it, which is even worse because social ostracism was a punishment used uh, to... Well, was the largest and worst punishment for, for humanity. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't make an announcement or a pronouncement as to which one is more difficult because I've only faced one version, you know? So I don't have the personal experience to be able to say, like, it would probably be easier to just be, like, risking my life each day versus risking that slow spiritual death. I think there are things that are easier and more difficult about both. Um, so, yeah, I'll put it there. But uh, that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Greg, and we're we're almost out of time. How far was, how long had Jesus been out in the open preaching when this gospel came out? This is his very first discourse in Matthew, and this is right after he calls the disciples. So this is the very beginning. I think it's very interesting that he says, in all these different things, he says, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. I think it's kind of interesting that so early in his mission, his ministry, that he puts me in there. Yeah. You know, I think he kind of wait and kind of like get that rolling a little bit later. Yeah. You know, because that's a big leap for people to, you know. Yeah. And I think Jesus is not, know. yeah, but he's not, um, he's not sugarcoating the fact that this is about your response to who I am and what I'm teaching. It's not about just being good, being a nice person. That's not what gets us to heaven. Jesus is who gets us to heaven. And it's the response, the living for righteousness for the sake of his name, that brings that persecution. So think about for a second who who he's writing to here as we close. He's writing to, Matthew's writing 25 to 30 years, uh, maybe 35 years after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. And so this is a time of great persecution, great growth in the church, but people are being persecuted, hunted down, left and right for being Christian. And think of the the hope that is in these words. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then this poignant piece that Matthew throws in here that uh, Greg just read. Blessed are they when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Isn't that nice? You know, it's like in the Gospel of John where, where Jesus says, uh, in your life, you will have trouble. I tell you this, so you will have peace. You're like, what? 
doesn't sound peaceful. Like, that's not great. I don't want trouble. But he's saying that. The word there, rejoice, it means to have joy. But be glad, another translation of that word is to literally leap for joy. You're being persecuted. Leap for joy. Why? Oh, because you'll get all these great things in life? No, your reward will be great in heaven. And that is the goal. That is the point. That's the reason why we are called to live completely set apart. And why Jesus thought it was so important to start his main, first, and most profound set of teaching with these words, these admonitions, so that we will live in such a way that we return to the heart of the law, that everything is directed toward love of God and love of neighbor, complete charity and devotion to him, and that it's a submission to his will, not our own will, trust in his plan, not our own plan, and a recognition that there is a God and we are not him. But our life is meant to be a response to him, and when that demands a response from other people, good or bad, we stand by him and we rejoice. Because even though we may not see the rewards in this life, we will see them in spades in the next. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, so much for this time in, in your word, this time with the Beatitudes. And we pray that this would be a beautiful uh, section for us to reflect back on throughout the course of this week. And that when we hear it proclaimed this coming weekend that it would speak to us in new ways, but we ask, Lord, that you give us the courage to live our faith boldly this week, to seek out the ways where we've become comfortable, where we've become ungrateful for the faith you've given us, the gift of salvation that we maybe haven't responded to faithfully, the ways that we still lack trust in you. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to embody these beatitudes, that instead of blessed is, we would place our names there and ask ourselves, Matt is poor in spirit. Matt is meek, or whatever our name may be, so that we can see, is this something I really believe and live out? And how can I get closer and closer to the type of person who embodies this so that I can follow you faithfully in all that I do? Because everything else in this world doesn't matter if heaven is not the goal. But if heaven is the goal, then everything else in this world is a means to that place, whether for us or for someone else. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us live our faith in boldness to get ourselves and as many other people with you in heaven at the end of time as possible. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So great.